0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Psychology. I'm Eugenio Duarte, your host, as well as the practicing psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in Miami. And today my guest is Jane Ward, author of the book The Tragedy of Heterosexuality, published in 2020 by New York University Press. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest today. Jane Ward is professor of gender and sexuality studies at University of California in Riverside. Her prior books include, Not Gay, Sex Between Straight White Men, as well as the book, *Respectably Queer, Diversity Culture in LGBT Activist Organizations. Jane, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: My pleasure. So why did you write this book?
0: Oh, well, um, you know, we were chatting a little bit before we started the interview, and I was saying that I have been teaching a course at UC Riverside for a number of years now called Critical Approaches to Heterosexuality. And I decided to create and teach that course because I had been inspired by Critical whiteness studies and critical masculinity studies, both of those are fields where, you know, we take a a privileged group, a dominant group, and we shift the analytic lens to look at that group, because often one of the ways that privilege works is that the privileged group doesn't ever get examined, you know. They are sort of unmarked. They're like just default human beings, whereas the rest of us, you know, we get surveilled and um, and theorized about and all of that. So, so I really wanted to think about heterosexuality and about the history of heterosexuality, how the meaning of heterosexuality has evolved over time, and so that's how that course began. And as I got deeper and deeper into that course we just naturally started thinking a lot, the students and myself about how much um, pain and suffering and dysfunction we were seeing in straight culture. and and so it's um, it's it's through those conversations that I wanted to sink into this
1: topic. So you mentioned the queer relief not to be straight. That's a quote from your book. Mm -hmm. Since this flies in the face of the pervasive assumption that queer life is unquestionably harder than straight life, could you please explain this concept of queer relief, not to be straight?
0: Sure. So where I'll just start with that is that I personally experience profound relief, not to be straight. Um, I'm now in my late forties and my partner and I, we've been together for 15 years and we have an 11 year old kid and we spend a lot of time now because we're parents with other parents, most of whom are straight. And that means that I'm just hearing from straight women all the time, their complaints about their husbands, how they don't you know, do their fair share of the parenting work, of the household work. I'm watching their marriages fall apart around me. Um, But it's not just that. It's also uh, the way that the media, it's, you know, the media has depicted heterosexual relationships. There's such a long history and it's ongoing of like sort of a cultural celebration of how much men and women don't really like each other, don't respect each other, don't understand each other. And then, you know, if you just spend even a few moments in the self-help aisle at your local bookstore, you know, you can just see he's not that into you and um, men, who hate women and the women who love them and all of this. And so, so it's really about, recognizing that we have this story that heterosexuality is love's gold standard and that it it promises a lot of happiness to people and if you actually like just kind of scrape away at the surface of that mythology you start to see underneath All of the misery and conflict that's there and a lot of that conflict because it's anchored in the gender binary in this idea that men and women are two fundamentally different kinds of people and that they're from different planets and that they don't really understand each other, you know, all of that we actually don't have that in queer relationships, which isn't to say we don't have gender difference in queer relationships. We do, but there's not, you don't go into queer relationships with an understanding that, you know, there's these like two fundamentally different kinds of people who are coming together in in a hierarchical relationship. So when you actually start to look at gendered suffering, We've been telling ourselves a story for a long time that queer people, you know, experience so much gendered suffering because of homophobic discrimination. But I argue in this book that it may very well be that it is straight women who are in relationships with men um, when we still are at the very beginning of healing centuries of patriarchy and misogyny Um, that it might very well be straight women who are experiencing the greatest amount of gendered suffering.
1: Now, in a moment, I definitely want to get into what it is that you see as um, problematic in straight relationships and why there's so much misery. But I first want to address the way that you are positioning your your queer readers, essentially. And it was kind of mind-blowing at first when I read your opening chapter and where you made this point that that queer people can, if, if they're willing to, you can kind of come to the rescue of straight people and have something to offer, given the privileges that we have. Now, on the one hand, I related to the idea of, of the relief to not be straight because I have felt it for a long time, but I don't think I've ever said it out loud because I thought that would just sound crazy to people, that I would choose this if I could. And in some ways I did. <laughs> But I do wonder, you know, for those, I don't know, for those queer people who don't have certain certain rights and privileges, for, for certain queer people whose lives have been much harder because they've been queer, you know, how do you talk to them about yeah. what they might have that straight people don't?
0: Right. So... Queer people have suffered tremendously as a result of homophobia and heteronormativity. And for queer people who are trans or non-binary as a result of transphobia, sexism. But all of that is not actually about queerness. That's about straight people and what straight people do to us. So I guess I would separate out, you know, what I'm saying is queer life and queer subculture is incredibly um for most of us it is that part of our life that is deliciously liberating um And it's, you know, to the extent that our lives are very difficult, it's because of what straight culture is doing to us. So even if you feel, you know, the boot of of heteronormativity or homophobia or transphobia on your neck, that doesn't mean that you don't have something to teach straight people about how they could be healthier. In fact, you probably have even more. It's not it's not the same but it can be a useful analogy to think about to think about race and to think about whiteness. There's so you know as a white person um, I know that I live complicit with white supremacy even as I am trying to see it, resist it, act against it. Um, you know, there are ways that, the white supremacist context is acting in my name as a white person. And that produces dysfunction for white people. It produces a lot of blindness, things we can't see about ourselves. And so do people of color have something to teach white people about how to get free? Yes, I think so. So similarly, all queer people have something to teach straight people about how to get free. And I just want to go back to what you said about like, because it's so powerful that you felt that, you know, you you felt queer relief not to be straight, but you never articulated it because it would just sound so absurd to people. And that tells us something really important right there, which is that the truth that many queer people experience, which is like, oh my God, I am so relieved <laughs> to not be straight. Uh, It has been, you know, silenced, basically. And it's silenced, I believe, because of the mainstream LGBT movement. The mainstream LGBT movement wants us to all rehearse the same narrative, which is that if, you know, of of course we would choose to be straight if we could, but we can't. So therefore, straight people have to accept us because we have a congenital or biological or hardwired difference. It's very connected with the whole bioessentialist argument about sexuality. And I think they've chosen that narrative because they believe it will be most effective politically, but they're they're promoting that narrative at the expense of what's true, what feels true for many of us.
1: So let's get into straight culture. Um, I'm going to ask you two questions at once. First, what is the difference? Is there a difference between straight people and straight culture? And then because because you seem to argue that at the center of the misery and straight culture is the misogyny paradox, I, I was hoping you could tell us what what that is.
0: Right. So absolutely there is a difference between straight people and straight culture in the same way that there's a difference between like individual white people and white culture or individual men and sexism or patriarchy. So there's so much potential for us as individuals to resist, to break out, to get free. And yet, you know, we are always being hailed into the dominant culture, especially if we are a member of the target group of that, you know, for that culture. So straight, I mean, when I think about straight people, I think about people who have a sexual desire for for people who they perceive to be of the opposite sex. But when I think about straight culture, I think about the way that um, heterosexual identity got invented as as a category by physicians, European physicians in the late 19th century, and then got kind of circulated as an idea around the globe. And how all of these psychologists and sexologists came together to define what they perceived to be healthy heterosexuality. And healthy heterosexuality in the early 20th century really got concretized as um, a relationship of two very different, not just people with different biologies, you know, a person with a penis and a person with a vulva, but people with two very different personalities. So all of these gendered personality traits were attached to men and women. And then a whole romance and a whole romantic industry and a whole psychological industry formed around the merging of these two opposite types of people one who was sort of aggressive and dominant um, and one who was passive and a a nurturer or a caretaker, one who, this is men, you know, who um, went out into the paid labor force and then came home and was, you know, could not be bothered to pay attention to anyone else, listen to anyone else, needed a lot of service, their food, their slippers, their beer, whatever, you know, a clean house, a beautiful wife, And then one who was imagined to be a kind of servant to that other figure, you know, somebody who was there to, who would be um, protected uh, and taken care of financially in exchange for her servitude and passivity, and so this, you know, these European sexologists and physicians, and then later American sexologists, physicians, and psychologists really start to build this framework and to name it as the American ideal, um, of what a good and healthy relationship looks like. And it just, you know, they just doubled down into the mid century, into the 1950s. And then even, uh, in fact, especially, especially as Um, the second wave feminist movement starts to push back against that. We get books like John Gray's book, um, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, that come along and, you know, um, uh, very kind of insidiously offer women an alternative to feminism by saying, you know, feminism is not going to get you anywhere in your marriage. What's going to get you somewhere is learning that you're a totally different kind of person. You know, you're a Venusian and Martians are something totally different. And you need to learn how to basically um, sacrifice and take some hits and learn some tricks and strategies for managing the other person. So, all of this, and then, and I'm also talking about countless movies, Disney, you know, children's media, um, all the self help books. All of this that's coming together to what I to, to create what I call the heterosexual repair industry, um, which is to help straight people resolve the conflicts, the, the deep gendered divisions in, in their relationships that are there because of patriarchy and misogyny. You know, this whole industry coming together to try to smooth it over without actually addressing the root of the problem. And the root of the problem, to get to your other question, is misogyny, which continues to be normalized in the broader culture. And so, of course, it's having trickle-down effects in
1: heterosexual relationships.
0: So we could talk about examples of that misogyny, but that's basically the upshot of the argument.
1: But why, why is it a paradox? Why do you call it the misogyny paradox?
0: Yeah, it's a paradox because... Heterosexuality comes to be defined for men as an attraction to, an orientation toward, a kind of um, relational commitment to women. And so it requires boys and men to orient themselves towards girls and women, even as they're living in a broader culture that normalizes boys and men's hatred of women. So, um, you know. Boys and men are receiving messages all the time that girls are weak. They're manipulative, 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 liars, bitches, whores, you know, um, that women are gold diggers, that women are there to serve them. You know, really a lot of messaging ongoing um, that, you know, was especially clear with the last President of the United States, who is putting it right out there in the national stage, um, that women are to be taken, to be owned, to be possessed, and so all of that, you know, falls under the umbrella of misogyny, which is hatred of women. And so there's a tension, right? When your sexual orientation as a man is that you're supposed to love women, but you also are in a context in which hatred of women is part of what defines you as a man. It's part of how you express your masculinity. There's a paradox there.
1: And and I want to highlight that what you helped me to see is the way in which this shows up um, in very subtle ways. I, I think a lot of, I'm sure a lot of people that, you know, a lot of straight couples, straight men that, you know, and straight men that I know, would say, oh my God, like, I'm not like that. I, I don't hate women. I, I love my wife. I love my girlfriend. And, and probably the, the women in those relationships would say the same thing. But w- what I think you highlighted in your book was that it, sh- it, it shows up in a certain kind of attitude, the way they dismiss each other. You talk about, um, you don't call it complaint culture, but I'll call it complaint culture that it, complaining is a sort of feature of heterosexual relationships that everyone just thinks is normal. Oh, my husband, he's such a slob. Oh, my wife, she talks so much. Am I, am I getting it right here? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I really tried to not ignore the more violent expressions of misogyny, because, of course, we have to address that as well, the domestic violence, the sexual violence, all of that. But of course, so many straight people feel that that's irrelevant to their relationships because they feel like, you know, they, they love each other and all is well. Um, so I do spend a lot of time talking about these subtler manifestations of misogyny and, um, what that, what that typically looks like is, um, is men's entitlement, uh, entitlement to women's Emotional labor, their parenting labor, their household labor, um, their self sacrifice. And men often don't even realize they're doing that. And that just manifests a million kinds of ways, you know? What we have so much research now on what this looks like. We know that it's changing, but it's changing not so much in the actual outcome of men's participation in the work of the family, as much as it's changing in men's um, values and aspirations. <laughs> so we know that many men enter marriage um, valuing equality and expecting that they're going to do just as much parenting, and they're going to do just as much housework. And then... Things happen, and when the rubber hits the road and things become difficult, men and women often default back right back into a very traditional gender gender division of labor. We saw this with COVID, that when somebody had to quit their job to care for the kids, no matter how feminist those husbands were, it was their wives. We often relate to women's careers as more flexible, um, supplementary, sometimes even expendable. And, you know, sometimes this looks like things, you know, men are just like, well, it's not that I don't want to take care of my infant. It's that she's breastfeeding. And so the baby prefers her or, um, you know, any number of excuses that men have. And it develops a kind, it becomes a sort of a self-fulfilling habit where, you know, women know ultimately the expectation is, that if their house is dirty, if they have children that need to be cared for, the broader culture is going to turn to them, expect, you know, and blame them for the failure to get those things done. Whereas men ultimately get a pass. Um, we could also talk about a heterosexual sex that even in marriages with a good, you know, a good man. Often what sex looks like is that women married women consent to it even when they don't really feel like having sex, that sex is over when the man comes, you know that women have straight women we know have far fewer orgasms than lesbian women um, certainly have fewer orgasms than their husbands. So it's just, it's all of these little things and it's the reason why, and I do talk about this in the book, in heterosexual marriages, women initiate the majority of divorces. Women report that they find marriage less satisfying than men find it, straight women do. And it's no wonder because men get a lot more materially out of marriage in terms of support from a wife than women ever get. In fact, women are taking on greater burdens when they get married.
1: Now, let's, let's speak to the straight people who might be listening to this interview right now. What, how do you, what is your vision for how their relationships could be better and for how, how they get there? Given that a lot of people may be thinking this is just kind of the way that it is. This is the way that it has to be for X, Y, or Z reason. How, how do folks actually change it to make themselves happier?
0: Right. Well, I, I just want to say, there is no way this is the way that it has to be. Yeah. And that's part of why, you know, I wrote this book as a queer person. I know that it doesn't have to be this way because I've seen it not be this way because it's not this way in my own life. And I don't actually believe as, as some queer people You know, have argued that straight people need to become queer or queer their marriages or something like that in order to have more fulfilling and humanizing partnerships. I actually think there are insights that straight people can pull out of queer feminist writing, queer feminist activism, queer feminist subculture, and apply to their heterosexual relationships and i in the last chapter of this book called this deep heterosexuality you know that um i'm just all for people getting to have self-determination and if and if straight people are straight then of course they should be in heterosexual relationships if that's what's fulfilling the problem is when it actually isn't fulfilling for straight women so if there's still you know if if it's the the sexual orientation is heterosexual, then how can we create a relationship culture, a relationship structure that's going to support that sexual and relational desire? And so so one way that we do that is we figure out a way for straight men to like women so much that they actually like women. We push straight men to give us the receipts. If they actually say that they love women so much, they're so turned on by women, they're so attracted to women, okay, great. Then really get into women. (laughs) Because from a lesbian feminist perspective, when you are attracted to women, when you desire for women, when you lust for women, it's not just the one woman that you're fucking, it's you care about women as a whole, you care about women's freedom. You care about what's best for women. You care about what happens to girls and women's bodies. You care about girls and women having access to self-determination. And so part of what I'm advocating for is that we redefine heterosexual masculinity to push it even further towards what we would think of as straight, which is for straight men to actually really be more into women than they're into men to care about what women think more than they care about what men think to have respect for women. This is another one of those contradictions within heterosexual masculinity, which is that straight men, you know, say that they're all about women, but actually they care far more about what other men think about them. Um, They care about the authority of other men. They have, Often there's this sort of gross before hoes ethos. And so I think the first thing we need to do is work on straight men to disrupt what ultimately looks like a pretty homosocial or even homoerotic attachment.
1: I was going to say that.
0: Men and
1: reroute that towards women. But let's, I, I want to make sure that our straight male listeners know exactly what you're talking about, because, you know, I, I can imagine people listening to this and thinking, no, but I, I'm very, I, I love my wife. I love my partner. I'm super into her. and and I do this and I do that. But what, when you say that they need to be more interested in all that it, all that woman entails, what, like, can you give examples of specific things they need to be doing that they're by and large not doing right now? Right.
0: Yes, thank you. Yeah. So what I'm what I'm not saying, I mean, back to the race analogy, when you care about racial justice, you know, it's not it's not enough to say, Well, I love black people. No. You gotta love the movement, you gotta get involved in the movement, and you have to wanna end white supremacy. That's how to love black people. So similarly, if you love women then you want women's freedom. And if you want women's freedom, you got to be a feminist. And if you're a feminist worth anything, then you actually tap into some kind of organization or infrastructure that's working on that set of issues. So what I recommend is from for men is that the work needs to happen on two different levels. The first is that the revolution begins at home. Doing a full accounting of, you know, um, the possibilities for equity in one's relationship is one's relationship feminist, and that looks like you know again paying attention to all that labor that is going into making that family operate, and whether it's really stereotypically gender divided and all of that. So revolution begins at home. Then the next thing is. I can count on one hand the number of feminist men's organizations in the United States. There's so, so little organizing that men do to address misogyny and patriarchy. I mean, pretty much none. You know, we have a number of national organizations where white people can tap into racial justice work and get involved in all sorts of white affinity groups and organizations where they can get connected with ending, you know, work to end white supremacy. And we do have no corollary infrastructure for men. So we have a problem here, which is that men are continuing to imagine that feminist work is women's job rather than seeing it as their own mm-hmm. so some way of connecting not just with your daughter's soccer team or you know coaching or whatever these are all really individualized ways of participating in you know in in your own f- the the girls and women's lives in your own family but they're not actually doing anything to create feminist social change and we need more men to get involved in that because what we know is those things are interconnected that if we have a broader context of inju- gender injustice of misogyny it's going to shape our our relationships and um and maybe we're going to try to you know, do our, do our own identities and our own relationships differently, but we're not going to be able to, unless we're changing the surrounding context. And some men get really confused. Like they are sort of a woke bro. And maybe, you know, there's straight men who like maybe have fingernail polish on or whatever they're doing, you know, but you can be wearing fingernail polish and still sexually assault someone. You can be wearing fingernail polish and still dominate at the, at, at, you know, any meeting you're in, I mean, it's really like these kind of performative things are not what we're asking for. What we're asking for is men to actually get involved in redistributing gendered power. And we desperately need that. And I want heterosexuality to look like that. Like I am so into women. I Women are so hot to me. <laughs> I'm so straight. I'm such a straight dude that I'm like leading five feminist projects right now.
1: Yeah. You know, do you ever, I don't know, I'm like, I'm like hesitant to ask this question, but are there scenarios, I know straight women who are not a fan of this. You know, they, I've, I've heard this at a party before. You know, I've 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 heard women who say I I don't need to be equals with my man. I I don't want us to be the same. Um, you know whatever that means. And does any of Do you think that any of this messaging also needs to be directed at certain women in the way that they see men? Like like is there a way in which they need to deepen their heterosexuality, or they need to also work through their internalized misogyny?
0: They need to work on their internalized misogyny for sure. I mean, the first question that I would ask is, is how's that working out for you? Um, So a lot of straight women will say that, you know, they'll sort of laugh and confess that they're into kind of, you know, bad boys or whatever it is. They maybe enjoy complaining. There's that whole culture of complaint, which is really big for straight women, sort of getting a getting together with your girlfriends and complaining about how pathetic your boyfriend or husband is, um, uh, trying to make sense of men's behavior, like why he didn't call you back, you know, all of this kind of stuff. I mean, uh, yeah, to me, it's just like that, that is internalizing misogyny, the expectation that it's, it, that's all there is. Like men aren't ever going to do any better. You got to accept the crumbs. Um, and not only accept the crumbs, but of course, you know the heterosexual repair industry has tried to eroticize the crumbs, like you know if a man does the littlest thing for you, I mean
1: that's so really, hot
0: it's so hot, you yeah. know, if a man cares for his own takes his own child on a walk, it's like in a stroller, you know, oh my God, we're all gushing over this man because he took care of his child, you know, or a man gives you roses, even though, you know, he hasn't done shit for you for months. It just, straight women have been conditioned to accept so, so little. And when you're conditioned to accept so little, yeah, it makes sense that you get really excited about the crumbs, You and you romanticize the crumbs, and you eroticize the crumbs, so much more is possible than that.
1: Now your book is very much, no, your book is about straight people and straightness. Um, you know, but one final question I want to ask you is whether you think that any of these same problems or ills sometimes seep their way into queer relationships.
0: Um, so, uh, yeah, I try to be really clear about that in the book that, you know, queer people, Have problems, and we have problems in our relationships. You know, we um, sometimes lie to each other. We sometimes cheat on each other. We sometimes, you know, treat each other badly. There are queer people who are assholes. There are queer people who are abusive. I am not arguing against any of that. So that's why it's really important to talk about the cultural context. Are there individual queer people in queer relationships that are unhealthy and dysfunctional? Absolutely. But the point is that we don't celebrate or romanticize that in queer self-culture. We don't send people into queer relationships expecting that that's going to happen or celebrating that, you know, somebody, you know, making endless movies about somebody being an old ball and chain or about, you know uh the last night of freedom before the wedding or you know
1: all this stuff but i see queer people do this like i've seen queer people sort of they're getting married and they have a bachelor party and they 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 kind of participate in that discourse they complain about their partner
0: oh that's sad yeah
1: i'm sorry to interrupt you it's just that image those images come to mind i've seen that before
0: I have not seen very much of that. I would, I guess I would be interested, you know, another piece of this story is really the difference between what we might call just for the sake of convenience, sort of mainstream gays and politicized queers. And my world is mostly a world of like pretty politicized queer people who understand their queerness, not just as like homosexual, homosexuality, but a kind of political orientation around gender and sexual non-normativity. So most of the queer people that I know are actively trying to create different kinds of rituals around relationship, different ways of making family, different ways, you know, a lot, uh, you know, different ways of expressing desire of understanding bodies. Um, so are there mainstream gay people who really want assimilation, you know, who really want to be able to do all the things exactly the way straight people do them, including some of that straight cultural crap. Yes, absolutely. But that's really not the reference point that I'm working with in this book. Like what I'm working with in this book is like, what, are, what have queer visionaries laid out for us as an alternate way of being in relationship with each other? Um, and that's the one that I see. I mean, granted, you know, like I'm an academic and I've got all, yeah, I'm in LA. And so it would, you know, it's one kind of context. And yet I think it's a really valuable one. And I lean very heavily on lesbian feminist writers, especially folks writing in the seventies and eighties who had a lot to say about this.
1: And what's amazing is the way that you have made the case that lesbian feminism has something to contribute to the enrichment and the enlightenment of of straight culture. Um, have, have you had a chance to get feedback from straight people who have read your book or heard your ideas?
0: Yes. So on the one hand, I've had many straight people just gush about the book and tell me how much they loved it and how transformational it was for them. And, um, I've heard from some straight men who felt both challenged and very grateful for the book. Um, and I've heard from straight women who felt very seen by the book. I've heard from a number of straight women who say that they like hashtag parts of the book. They quote lines from the book and text to each other, (laughs) this kind of thing. Um, so, so there's, all of that has been great. And then I've also received a phenomenal amount of violent hate mail from, um, Not people who've read the book, but people who read articles on like religious right websites and uh, news outlets um, about the book. Those clearly were intended to incite that kind of response. And so I have received no end of pretty aggressive um, hate mail.
1: What do you do with that?
0: I post that on the book's Instagram page. (laughs) So if you want to read the hate mail, that's my way of dealing. That's my therapeutic approach is for me being able to share it and use it as data um, because, you know, the irony is that that I'll get an email that's like, you fucking cunt. There is no such thing as misogyny. And it's just like, thanks for providing exactly the substantiation Mm -hmm. the evidence of the
1: point yeah yeah well i want to say to you what i said to you off the air which is that i think your book is mind-blowing and essential and i i can't imagine a world where it wasn't written and thank you so much um before we go what are you working on these days what are you up to
0: yeah. So I am working on something completely different. Um, a co, a co a colleague of mine, Shoma Chowdhury, and I are putting together um, an anthology about witches and witchcraft and witch persecutions around the world. Um, so I've been really excitedly working on that and all that we can learn from the figure of the witch. And then I also have been working, this is a little bit closer to what I've typically write about, which is, you know, heterosexual straightness. Um, I've been working on how the Me Too movement has influenced the way that um, television sex scenes are filmed. So, um, you know, a lot of coercion and even sexual assault had been happening in the entertainment industry um, where actors felt sort of uh, pressured at the last minute to show more of their body or to engage in simulated sex acts they didn't want to engage in. And so the industry is actually seeing a major overhaul of the way that that sex scenes are handled. And there's just a lot of juicy details in there about how that's all unfolding. So I'm writing about that as well.
1: Those both sound amazing. I can't can't wait to... To read them um, and to know about them when they come out. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. I also want to remind our listeners about your book. I've been talking to Jane Ward about her book, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality. Jane, thank you so much. Thank you.